Grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Micah. So we are trekking along here in our journey, soaring through Scripture as we go through God's Word at 30,000 feet, really taking an overview of God's Word as we are looking just to kind of get a, a summary, basic themes in kind of general outline of what's going on through God's Word. And so we are in the minor prophets right now. The last 12 books of the Old Testament known as the minor prophets. And again, they are not minor because they're less significant or don't have much of importance to say. They're minor prophets simply because they're small books. And so um, the content of it is smaller in comparison to what we see with some other books um, in the major prophet section, of course. And so um, we're taking our time going through a few books a night, uh, except for last week. We took one night for the book of Jonah, four chapters, book of Jonah. So that was a little bit of a, all right, we did a bit of circling in the air around Jonah. And that's a great story. If uh, you weren't here last week, check it out online. But now we pick it up, moving along into the next minor prophet, and that is Micah. And we're, Lord willing, going to go through uh, another three prophets here today in Micah, Nahum, and Habakkuk. It's really only uh, 13 chapters, so it's not really that bad in comparison to what we've done in the past. So, book of Micah, hopefully you are there together. Micah's name means who is like Yahweh or who is like Jehovah. This is what Micah sets out to answer in this whole book of his, in the seven chapters that he writes. He is looking to set out this answer now. Who is like Yahweh? He's looking to show that God is holy. God is pure. And because of that, God needs to deal with sin. This is an aspect that a lot of people, I think, really question and wonder about God. If, if God is so loving, why does this stuff have to be judged in a sense, right? And a lot of people think, well, when I die, I'll just stand before God. And because God is loving and, and full of mercy and grace, well, then I'm just going to get off the hook, right? But because God is loving and good, he's also a just God. And that means that he needs to deal with sin, with things that are in rebellion against him. He wouldn't be a good God if he let that go, all right? And so... Micah is looking to kind of bring some of these things up that even though God is loving, he's also just and he needs to deal with sin, all right? And so we see these two aspects in Micah's writing here. We see that Micah is looking, revealing the judgment of God, but also the grace and the desire that God has for reconciliation and restoration. God is entirely like no other. Who is like Yahweh? That's what Micah sets out to answer. In fact, jump to the end because I just want to give you a bit of a preview here kind of as what we'll be seeing here. Micah 7 verse 18 to 19 and it says this here. Micah chapter 7 verse 18 to 19 just in kind of seeing the summary of this here. It says there in verse 18 of chapter 7, who is a God like you pardoning iniquity? And passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage, he does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. He will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. So who is like Yahweh? Now, the book of Micah has been a 
kind of a favorite among the minor prophets because it's filled with a real tenderness to it. All right, we're going to see just again that heart of Micah. We're going to see the the desire to communicate truly that love and and goodness and mercy of God. Now, the time of Micah's writing is given to us as we see in verse one here, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsha in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So, so Micah gives the, the kings that are there during his time of ministry. And so we know that he ministered uh, anywhere from Jotham's reign, which began in 750, to the end of Hezekiah's reign, which was 686 BC. So anywhere in that time period, um, Micah was ministering probably sometime around 740 to 700 BC. And so that would make Micah also a contemporary of Isaiah, Hosea, and Amos. Other prophets that God had used that were contemporaries of, of him. In fact, Micah had been called a miniature Isaiah, as I've been called oftentimes a miniature of just fill in the blank. But um, Or it's also been called Isaiah in shorthand because there's, again, just like Isaiah was writing really to reveal the salvation of the Lord. Micah is writing to, to reveal really that heart of God and desiring to bring about that salvation and, and restoration to Israel. Now, we're gonna see that Micah, he's from the town of Morsheth, as we read there already, located about 25 miles southwest of Jerusalem. Fertile area, lots of farming going on there, similar to, to Amos's background. So Micah had that kind of background with them. And in the first half of the 8th century, under the reigns of Jeroboam II in Israel and Uzziah and Jotham, kings in Judah, there was this freedom from Assyria. I'm just giving you a bit of context and background to the book here. There's a lot of freedom that they were experiencing from any Assyrian interference. And so the people in Israel were prospering, all right? They're sitting back. They're going, man, we got it good right now. We got no threats coming against us. We're feeling comfortable. But what happens oftentimes is in the case when people begin to get comfortable, they begin to get a little bit complacent. And the people of Israel were no different because along with their wealth now and their feeling of contentment and comfort, they began to get very corrupt, all right? Now, Amos was one that spoke out against those things. He saw it firsthand. So Micah comes along now and he continues on in a similar message to point out the economic and the social injustices that were happening here. How people were getting out of balance with really what God was desiring to see them carry out and how to live out. Micah had to confront idolatry. He had to confront corrupt acquisition of property, the failure that was going on in leadership, religious and civil failures going on. Um, the idea that personal sacrifice will bring God's mercy and then corrupt business practices and violence. So he's dealing with all these different things that were kind of taking place as he's witnessing this firsthand. Now, the book of Micah is divided basically into three sections and it's all kind of these three messages that Micah is sharing, all right? Each message begins with the word here, all right? So chapters one and two is the, the first message here that we see. And the second message, chapters three to five, from predators to shepherd. Third message, from darkness to light in chapter six and seven. So chapter one begins with that word here. Chapter three will begin with here. Chapter six will begin with that. Now, what's interesting is that all of these messages kind of follow a similar structure. Because it's going to begin with that, that judgment going out from the Lord, kind of condemnation against 
against Israel and, and for what they've been doing. But then it's going to be followed by that proclamation of what God's going to do. And then finally an affirmation of God's love and his desire for restoration. All right. So it begins with that kind of word of condemnation, the judgment that's going to be ensuing, but then God's desire for restoration. So we see that here from disaster to deliverance, from predators to shepherds, from darkness to light. Now Micah was one that really predicted the fall of the northern kingdom by the Assyrians, and he wrote primarily to warn those in Judah, the southern kingdom, that if Israel, the northern kingdom, is going to be facing this, then they're not far behind. And they better get their act together or else they're going to be falling prey to the same kind of judgment here if they didn't repent to their sin. So Micah is really the only prophet whose ministry was directed ultimately to both kingdoms, to that in the north, Israel, and the southern kingdom of Judah. So he's got a, a message that's really geared towards both kingdoms, a very unique thing here. So look at again in chapter 1 verse 2, the first of the message here, and we see that word here, hear all you peoples, listen O earth and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? So here's Micah, and he's seeing that judgment is coming. He's looking to sound the alarm. Here, listen, listen up, people. Hear the word here now, all right? Mountains are going to be melting like wax. The hills are going to be trampled down. Now these picture for us... Uh, it resembles what we're going to be seeing at the Lord's second coming, right? When he comes as that conquering king, looking to judge that, that final rebellion against him. And that's going to be a picture of what's going to, the mountains are going to be split in two. But this isn't speaking about the, the second coming of Christ. It's speaking about the form that God's going to use a judgment against his people in that day. And that would be through the Assyrian army. The Assyrians are going to come and they're going to come swiftly and they're going to come harshly and they're going to decimate the land as they come against God's people. So Micah calls out for the people to hear. Micah himself has his ear to the ground and he sees what is coming. It, it reminds me of the man who's driving along a dirt road when he, he saw a farmer lying there in the middle of the road with his ear to the ground. And, and the man stops in his car and he gets out to investigate. As he approached the farmer, he heard him mumbling, large wheels, huge tires, Ford pickup truck, color green, man driving with a large dog next to him, Texas license plate, traveling approximately 80 miles per hour. The man that stopped was astonished. He asked the farmer, you mean you can tell all that by listening with your ear to the ground? The man responded, listening with my ear to the ground? You gotta be kidding. I'm giving a description of the truck that just ran over me. So, Micah's observing the things that are coming, coming against him, coming against God's people. And he knows that it's going to be hard to get out of the way of what the Lord's going to do, you see. So Samaria and Jerusalem here, they get special attention. They're called out kind of in verse 5. Is, is it not Samaria? What are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Do you see that in verse 5? So they get called out special attention here. Samaria, of course, that's the capital of the northern kingdom. Jerusalem, the capital of the southern kingdom. And really what's going on in those two cities are having an impact and infecting ultimately all that's going on around it. 
unlike what we hear with some cities today, what happens in Samaria or what happens in Jerusalem stays in Samaria, Jerusalem, not the case. It's spreading. And that's often the case here that we oftentimes fail to realize is that the things that we do sometimes have an impact on those around us. We think, oh, we can just kind of contain it here. We can sort of protect ourselves. We can hide these things, but it has a way of spreading. And so we're seeing this happening here with Samaria and Jerusalem. That was the center, the hub of, of these areas. And it's beginning there, but it's having an impact and infecting those around them. How we need to be careful that we don't try and hide our sin thinking that it has no bearing on others. Because this here, they're getting called out now because this is where a lot of these things originated and it began to spread. Well, look at verse eight of chapter one. Therefore, here's Micah saying, therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make a wailing like the jackals and a mourning like the ostriches. For her wounds are incurable, for it has come to Judah, it has come to the gate of my people, to Jerusalem. Notice how Micah responds to the sin that he sees in the land. Micah's not sitting back, pointing the finger, saying, ah, you guys are going to get exactly what you deserve. You just wait and see, man. He's not pointing the finger. He's not speaking harshly or judgmentally to them. What's Micah doing? He's weeping. He's weeping over the, the gravity, the magnitude of the sin and the repercussions and the consequences of it. He's hurt by this. He's weeping heavily over the damage of sin. Mike is not a dispassionate observer, steeled against the terrors he predicts. Instead, he's so torn apart by the grief that was to come that he wails and he strips himself naked, which was a, a, a sign of just deep despair here. He's torn up over the fact that God's people were about to be torn apart. And he's giving an outward, really, demonstration of what's going on inside as he tears his clothes here. In the ancient world, when times got tough, a prophet would sometimes go out appearing in the buff. Nakedness was a sign of mourning. So God revealed to Micah here the, the bare facts, the naked truth in a sense here, right? He knew that people had sinned, and that they're about to be judged. In essence, Micah was a microcosm of God's heart here. God's never pleased to bring judgment. It grieves him deeply. He'd rather, he'd rather forgive and bless and see people repenting and coming into, again, a right relationship with him. God's one that mourns over sin just as Micah was mourning over it. Because God's a God that desires to be in relationship with his people. But sin gets in the way of that. That's why he has to deal with sin. So Micah goes on now in chapter 2 to lay out some of the abuses that were going on. Even among some of the leadership here. It says in chapter 2 verse 1, Woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil on their beds. At morning late they practice it. Because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence. Also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man in his house. A man and his inheritance. Therefore thus says the Lord. Behold against this family I am devising disaster. From which you cannot remove your necks. Nor shall you walk haughtily. For this is an evil time. So Mike is turning his attention to the abusive leadership in Israel and in Judah. Basically, what he says here is, you know, they're lying on their beds at night, just dreaming up ways that they can, they can act wickedly. They can act corruptly. They can 
they can exploit the people around them. They're dreaming up plans here that's going to benefit them and hurt others, you see. And as soon as morning hits, he says, it's morning light, they practice it. They just go out. It's like, oh man, this is a great idea. I'm going to try this here now. And they get up in the morning, they just go out and start to act out in that sin and corruption. They practice the world's view of the golden rule, which is he who has the most gold makes the rules. And that's how they're living right now. If I can stock up for myself material wealth and gain and power, prosperity, prestige, then man, I'm going to be able to control those around me in a sense. But what they're doing was completely outside of God's law. Because the land here was to remain within the families and tribes. And if it was sold, it was to be returned at the year of Jubilee. That kept the rich from really completely running roughshod over the poor. But again, their actions here now, they got the attention of God. And he's announcing that disaster is coming upon them, right? All their wealth and their assets will be of no help to them in that day. How we as well need to understand that God cares about how we treat the poor. This is all in judgment over how they've been treating other people around them. And God cares deeply with how we respond to other people, how we treat other people. This is a big deal to God. Well, Micah turns next to the, the false prophets now. Chapter two, verse six. Do not prattle, you say to those who prophesy, so they shall not prophesy to you. They shall not return insult for insult. You who are named the house of Jacob, is the spirit of the Lord restricted? Are these his doings? Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? Now that word prattle, interesting word, it means to, to prophesy or to speak. So these are false prophets speaking on saying to the true prophets like Micah, stop preaching, stop prophesying, right? Do not, do not speak anymore. They're trying to control and limit that word of God here. These false prophets would come along saying that everything is gonna be just fine. We've seen that all through different, um, you know, prophetic writings here in God's word that many people are saying, God's not gonna let anything happen to us. We're his chosen people. We've got the temple, we've got Jerusalem here. Like God's not gonna let anything come down heavy upon us, man. We're, we're kind of safe, so they thought. And so they would speak a false word. Do not my words do good to him who walks uprightly? He says at the end of verse seven. See, the people should have seen the value of walking according to God's word. They just kind of started to live again, like I said, very complacent, casual, corrupt lives, thinking, ah, we don't really need to follow God's word. We're, we're good. We're, we're kind of born into this. We're, we're as people, we're, we're safe here just because of who we are but they neglected God's word. They turned away from it. And so their destruction was not coming as a result of Michael's prophesying. It was coming as a result of their disobedience to God's word. Chapter three begins that second message of Micah. It says in verse one, and I said, hear now, O heads of Jacob, and you rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate good and love evil, who strip the skin from my people and the flesh from their bones, who also eat the flesh of my people, flay their skin from them, break their bones and chop them in pieces like meat for the pot, like flesh in the cauldron. That word here now, it's a real key here. This wasn't something to put off or, or, or to think through and see if there's something to gain from it. He's like, listen up and act now, here now. 
All right? This is something that they were to listen to and put into action. God's speaking here, and it's important, especially in light of their present condition and the impending consequences coming their way. And this first section is directed to the civil leaders, the judges who are to be acting justly and fairly and to bring about equity and security. They should have been intimately acquainted with this after experiencing the justice of God repeatedly in their own lives. They were ones that should have had a heart for good and they, dis- and they should have despised evil. They should have been looking to do everything they could to, to squash that stuff that was contrary to God's way because they've experienced nothing but goodness from God and yet now they're acting out evil themselves. They were ones that began to hate good and love evil. Completely opposite to God's way and God's ideal. Verse 8 of chapter 3, But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord, and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression, and to Israel his sin. So unlike these false prophets who are really speaking on their own, you know, merit, out of their own gain, Micah, how's he operating? He's operating under the power of the Spirit, right? I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might. He's confident the word shared because it's not his own word. He's speaking on, on behalf of the Lord leading him through the Spirit. The question arises, are we those that are operating in the power of the Spirit to accomplish God's work? Are we, are we being confident in our own ability and strength? Or does our confidence rest in the Holy Spirit? This is we were talking on Sunday. Jesus has given us the, the Holy Spirit as that, that comforter, that, that helper to enable us and equip us to carry out his work, to live according to his way, how we need to be so dependent and relying on the Holy Spirit. Now, at the end of chapter three, they're dealt the reality of what's coming. Look at verse 12 of chapter three. It says there, therefore, Because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. Okay, so God lays it out pretty clearly to them. I mean, they should not be surprised on the day of judgment, right? Jerusalem is going to be a heap of ruins. And again, they would have been listening to that going, are you serious? Do you think God's going to allow that to happen to his holy city? They're all looking at that going, there's no way God's going to do that. They're thinking Micah's being the false prophet. But Micah's speaking the truth. Chapter 4 shares some light and hope on this whole situation, though. Again, Micah filled with judgment of God, but also the love and desire of restoration from God. Look at chapter 4. Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and peoples shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion, the law shall go forth and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. See, God's not going to destroy Israel or Judah and Jerusalem specifically just to let it lay in ruins forever and ever. 
His plan is temporary destruction for the purpose of future restoration. Think about the grace and the love of God here. Because, I mean, he could have just started over. He could have grabbed a new nation for himself. He could have started at a new location. He could have said, I I'm done with these guys. But because he upholds his word, he's going to show compassion on his people and he's going to establish them once again. He's going to make the former heaps of ruins known as Jerusalem. As we saw in chapter 3, verse 12, it was going to be laid desolate. Well, it says here that it's going to stand above all the other mountains. Jerusalem is going to become more majestic than all others. Not only will Jerusalem be reestablished as a holy city, the nations will also be established as a holy people. That's going to happen when the true worship of God is going to be restored. Now, when it says there in, in, the, in verse 1 of chapter 4, it shall come to pass in the latter days, that's speaking of the millennial reign of Christ. It's, it's advancing ahead to the ultimate plan of God when he allows and brings the Messiah back to this world to set up his earthly kingdom. And at the second coming, Jesus is going to squash that last great rebellion against him and his people, and he's going to usher in his reign and rule. And all those that survived the tribulation with faith in Jesus are going to come and worship him and observe his law. Many nations shall come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, verse 2. So Micah here is including some wonderful prophecies of Jesus' second coming, but he also includes prophecy of his first coming. An incredible one at that, Micah 5, 2, a very famous verse in the book of Micah, which predicts Jesus' first coming. Look at verse 2 of chapter 5. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. You see, People would have read that and thought, no, no way. Nobody of significance is going to come out of Bethlehem. Yet God speaking through Micah announces the birthplace of the Messiah some 730 years before it happens. Every year at Christmas time, we like to sing that song, Oh Little Town of Bethlehem, right? Because it was, it was small, it was insignificant. But you see, God chose humble means what seems like insignificant places to bring forth the Messiah, the Son of God, the deliverer for the world. He operates through unconventional means. Jesus came humbly, without fanfare, to do the most sacrificial work anyone has done. This is how Jesus came. And Micah predicts that. Out of you, Bethlehem. That's why the wise men are, are, are coming in. They're, they're approaching, you know, in a Jerusalem and, and fallen star knowing that, oh man, the Bible is predicting here in Bethlehem it's going to become one a ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from both from everlasting, meaning that again it's speaking of, of Christ's deity that he's fully God. Bethlehem wasn't his starting point because he always existed. But this is when he clothed himself in humanity. When he came in that incarnation. And so Micah lays that out for us. But then in verse 3, it says, Therefore he shall give them up until the time that she who is in labor is given birth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return to the children of Israel. 
So Micah moves from, you know, chapter four, the second coming of Christ to his first coming in Micah 5, 2. But now in Micah 5, 3, he kind of lays out, interestingly in this one verse, kind of a whole scenario or, or timeline of the history of Israel. The future history of Israel. Because notice there, therefore he, God, shall give them up. Speaking of his people. See what's gonna happen, Israel's gonna be handed over. They're gonna be laid aside when the church becomes the focus. Right now we're living in this age of grace where Israel is blinded in part. They're laid aside. And it's this period of grace where God is bringing all people into the, the family of God. But then a time of labor is gonna come upon Israel. It's gonna be the tribulation. They're gonna go through this intense period of, of persecution for these seven years when the church is taken out of the way and God begins to, to deal with Israel specifically again. But during that time, many are gonna to come to faith in Jesus during that tribulation period. Then the remnant of his brethren, it says at the end of verse three, shall return to the children of Israel. So within that one verse, we kind of have a, a whole timeline of the scenario of Israel in our, in our recent history and future history of Israel. Well, in chapter six, we see our third message now. Chapter six, verse one, hear now what the Lord says, arise, plead your case before the mountains and let the hills hear your voice. Hear, O you mountains, the Lord's complaint and you strong foundations of the earth for the Lord has a complaint against his people and he will contend with his people or he's gonna bring charges against him. It's like he's bringing them into that, that courtroom now of God. And he's laying the charges out for them. The Lord has taken Israel to task because of that, their outright obedience to him. They've been unfaithful. And as we go through these, these two chapters, we'll begin to see specifically what some of these complaints were that the Lord had against Israel. But first of all, the Lord begins to ask Israel if there's any reason why they should be behaving this way. Typically, we rebel when there's something, you know, heavy or hard against us, when we don't like something. But Israel's rebellion has really been unsolicited and uncalled for because look at verse three. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wearied you? Testify against me. For I brought you up from the land of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage and I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. He, he begins to lay out for his people that I've done nothing but good for you. I've delivered you, I've taken care of you. What have I done to, to warrant these things? The answer is nothing. So Micah expresses the sentiment of the people in verse six and seven. It says that the people are asking, you know, how can they make this up to God? They're starting to see like, oh man, yeah. Why have we acted this way? What can we do, God, to appease you? And they start going in verse six and seven, you know. How about you know, bringing burnt offerings. How about a thousand rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Can we bring a little, is that gonna help in anything? But Micah responds in verse eight, probably one of the most well-known verses in, in Micah, if not, you know, the Old Testament here, a great verse in Micah six, verse eight, he has shown you, O man, what is good, right? This is in response to the people saying, Lord, what should we do? Should we bring up just multiple offerings to you? Is that gonna help our case? God simply says, no. He's showing you, oh man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Great verse. 
Again, that emphasizes a heart change in the people. It's not about performing works or religious activities, but rather coming in line with the character of God. Because this is the very heart of God, isn't it? To do justly, to love mercy. To walk humbly. This is what God desires of his people. See, all of these religious workings meant nothing if they were neglecting the things that really mattered to God. Loving him, loving others, walking in repentance. It's a reminder that God doesn't want your stuff. He wants your heart. That's always the response that we need to come to, Lord. And, and so often we think, okay, I've messed up, man. It's, I've been in a dry season. I got to really up my game right now. I got to really come to God and show him, man, I am, I'm all in. I'm in business. I got to really put on, you know, the, the Christian life right now. And we think sometimes that, man, when we've kind of been dry or we've been distant, we need to do something. God says, no, I want your heart. And, and when your heart is right with God, these things are going to be natural outflows of our love for him and our love for people. So again, we finish now in Micah with some wonderful words of encouragement and hope as we see the mercy of God just really unfold. Look at verse 18 again. We started with this, but let's wrap up this, this book here with these last few verses. Chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins in the depths of the sea and you will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. So though there are times where we need to be corrected, chastised as the people of Israel were, God's ultimate goal is repentance, reconciliation, and restoration. He's not looking to hold any of your faults, mistakes, or sins against you. He wants to bury them. But he needs your heart and a heart of repentance for that to happen. As Corey Ten Boom said, when we confess our sins, God casts them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. And even though I cannot find a scripture for it, she says, I believe God then places a sign out there that says, no fishing allowed. See, just like Micah says here, he's going to cast all our sins in the depths of the sea. It's not a good, good promise for us here. And just as God isn't gonna go back and pluck them out, how we need to be careful that we're not doing the same thing, trying to bring them up against us or bring them up against other people. They're taken care of when we come and we confess them to the Lord. We walk in repentance. He's buried them. Don't need to be brought up again. God's heart is always to come and bring reconciliation and restoration. And that always flows out of a heart of repentance. Well, moving on to Nahum now. Nahum, just a short book, three chapters here. This book is, is a sequel in a sense to the book of Jonah. And it stands as a bit of a contrast to it. Because Jonah came at a time when Assyria was a dominant power, a threat to other nations. Jonah's message was a message of judgment against Nineveh. 
But the Ninevites all repented and God withheld his judgment. Didn't make Jonah too happy about it, but God had to deal with him. But now we fast forward some hundred years later and Nineveh has slipped back into their sinful ways. They're once more ripe for judgment. And so Nahum is raised up now to go and pronounce that word of judgment now against Nineveh. Hey, listen, it's an important lesson for us too that repentance is not a momentary, one-time thing, right? Nineveh repented, that's great. But guess what? They need to continue to walk in repentance. They need to continue to strive for the Lord's way and not their way. Continually turn from that which is not a God and, and be directing themselves to that which is of God. That's what we need to be doing daily. Lord, I want to walk in repentance. I want to be doing the, 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 the fruits worthy of repentance here by continually changing my direction from uh, or away from the things of the world and onto you, God, and, and into your ways here. So Nineveh did not do that. And so judgment is coming back their way here. So in the book of Nahum, we're going to be seeing chapter 1, Nahum declares Nineveh's demise. Nahum describes Nineveh's demise in chapter 2. And the name defends Nineveh's demise in chapter 3. Look at verse 1. The burden against Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum the Elkoshite. God is jealous and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. I love the fact here that name brings up, listen, God's slow to anger, all right? He's great in power, but he's slow to anger. And, and how we need to recognize that God is long-suffering, but his long-suffering does not mean allowance. In other words, it does not mean that, oh, I guess I'm doing okay. I guess I can continue on in this act or this activity. I guess I can keep on in my sin because, well, it doesn't seem like God really minds not doing anything about it. But you see, God is long-suffering. He's slow to anger. He's not wanting to bring about that judgment right away here. He wants us to repent so that, again, we can be restored. And notice what it says there. He has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm. I like that. See, there are times where we might feel like we're caught up in a whirlwind. The storms may be blowing hard in our lives. But notice this. The Lord has his way there. Sometimes it's in the storms, it's in the whirlwind, it's in that point where we're feeling like completely out of sorts that God wants to reveal himself to us, that God wants to do a work in our lives and bring about his way for us. Listen, we don't have to feel the turmoil, we just need to look to God and say, Lord, have your way in this. Teach me what you want me to learn in this time and through this ordeal that I might be in. God, have your way in this. Now, though Nahum is speaking a word against Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria, and so he's dealing with the Assyrians now, there's still a message that's going on to the people of Israel. It says in verse 7 of chapter 1, The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble, and he knows those who trust in him. And then in verse 12, Thus says the Lord, Though they are safe and likewise... Many yet in this manner, yet they will be cut down. 
when he passes through, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. So name speaking a word now for Israel, a, a word of encouragement. God knows those who are trusting in him. If you're for the Lord, he's gonna be for you. Nineveh, Assyrians, they're gonna be cut down. God's gonna take care of them. Though I afflicted you, I'm gonna afflict you no more, he's saying there at the end of verse 12. He's giving them a, a message of hope now. Now in chapter two, we have the description of Nineveh's collapse. In 612 BC, it was the Babylonian army that came up against Nineveh and the Assyrians, destroyed the city of Nineveh and, and just kind of took out this Assyrian empire. Now, the coming army would instill fear and panic in the Assyrians, just as the Assyrians had done countless times in their numerous conquests. Look at chapter two, verse three. The shields of his mighty men are, are made red. The valiant men are in scarlet. The chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation and the spears are brandished. Or brandished. So the Assyrians, see they had a custom of rolling their outer garments in blood before a battle to really strike fear into their opponents. So I mean, they're playing psychological warfare here before they even get onto the battle lines, right? They're coming in, blood dripping. And so everybody sees these guys coming with blood on their armor or, or their gear. They're just like, oh my goodness, these guys, like they mean business. And it just started to, instill this kind of fear into their opponents. But now the tables are going to be turned on them. As the Babylonians are going to be coming, making their mighty men red and, and their mighty men in scarlet here. Tables are going to be turned on the Assyrians. What they've done to others is going to be done back to them. And in verse 13, God says, Behold, I'm against you, says the Lord of hosts. I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. This is again, a word against the Assyrians here. And what chilling words to hear from the Lord, I'm against you. Think about that. I'm against, oh man. You don't want to hear those words from the Lord. Now how is the Lord against us? Well, if we're against him, God's got to come and and deal with that. Ultimately, he gives you opportunity to repent as he had done with Nineveh, sending Jonah their way. And God relented and God held back. But now they're continuing to show that they are against God and God is saying, I'm against you. But here's the truth. If we're for the Lord, then again, he is for us. As Romans 8, 31 says, if God is for us, then who can be against us? chapter 3, we see the reason why God had to bring judgment like this upon Assyria and against Nineveh in particular. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city. It is all full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. The noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear. There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. Because of the multitude of harlotries, of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. So Nineveh has been a city that's been carrying on bloodshed. They've been practicing in, in, in harlotries and sorcery. They have just gone completely outside uh, of God's way and will. They've been brutal. They've treated 
um, captives of war with such, you know, barbaric practices that just sent fear into defending cities. So much so that some cities that were being attacked by Assyria would just commit mass suicide rather than fall prey to the hands of the Assyrians. Not only were they cruel, but they boasted of their cruelty. They had monuments sharing the way that they treated others. And these are existing in museums today. Descriptions of skinning their captives alive, piling up the corpses as pillars, cutting off fingers, hands, noses, and ears, placing heads on posts around the city. Just grotesque and despicable acts. This is what the Assyrians were doing. So you can see why God has got to be severe and, and strong and, and swift with them. Now, like I said, God had previously relented when they repented, but now they've continued in their sin and there's been no desire to change. He says in verse 19 of chapter three, says, your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear near news of you will clap their hands over you for upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually. So God says, listen, your wound is so severe, it's not healing. You have no desire to repent. God understands that. And there'd become a time when people would be rejoicing over their demise. Their wickedness had been evident to all, but now their demise would be a cause of, of celebration. It's a sad legacy to have, right? What kind of legacy are we leaving behind? Are we living in a manner where people are rejoicing when we come or rejoicing when we leave? Are we the kind of people that are upholding the, the things of God, living in a manner where we are, are being a light and, and in, living in an exemplary way of Jesus and his love and his grace, living for God's purposes and bringing glory to him? That's gonna happen when we stop striving for self, trusting in self, and rather letting God be our, our refuge and stronghold. Now, an interesting fact here, in Nahum 3.11, the prophet predicted that Nineveh would be hidden. You see that in chapter 3, verse 11? Um, yeah. You also will be drunk, you will be hidden. Sure enough, the destruction of Nineveh was so complete that Alexander the Great, when he came in with his troops right over the same desert ground, didn't even realize that there had once been a great city there. It wasn't until 1842 that archaeologists finally discovered the site and the location of this once great city of Nineveh. So it had been completely hidden just as God's word had said. Okay, last book here, Habakkuk. We're gonna move through this here. You still doing all right? Anybody need a stretch? Anybody need to get a glass of water thrown on them? Everybody okay? You all good? Okay, right back there. Here we go. I got some old coffee here. It's cold. All right, Habakkuk 1. Um, says the burden which the prophet Habakkuk saw. Oftentimes that word burden is just, again, that word for prophecy, uh, an oracle, a message that's being given here now. Um, and Habakkuk is a unique book because the prophecy is primarily a conversation taking place between Habakkuk and God. And the topic of conversation is a question by Habakkuk that has plagued people to this day. Basically, the question is, why does God allow evil to exist? God, why are you allowing these things to continue on? Why, God? That's what Habakkuk seeks to kind of pose to God in this book. 
The bottom line is that we won't always comprehend what God is doing or why he's doing it the way he's doing it. Right? I, I can't figure out the things that I do half the time, let alone trying to figure out the things that God is doing. An infinite, all-powerful God. But here's what we do know. The Lord wants to bring comfort and peace to us in these times. You know, the name Habakkuk means embraced by God. And though Habakkuk comes with questions, with doubt, with wonder, God wants Habakkuk to understand that God is sufficient. And we just need to take rest in God, in his sovereignty, in his power, in the things that God does. Take rest in him, be embraced by God. We may not figure everything out, but we can be consoled by the love of God. That's what we come to learn in the book of Habakkuk. And so here's how this book breaks down. We see Habakkuk chapter one, wondering and wait and wrestling. We see Habakkuk in chapter two, watching and waiting. And then in chapter three, worshiping and witnessing. So look at, look at verse two of chapter one. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry and you will not hear? Even cry out to you violence and you will not save? Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. So Habakkuk is witnessing violence, sin, trouble all around. And he's perplexed over these things. And, and he's perplexed why he was having to see all that. He's wondering why God wasn't fixing all of that. Don't we live in a world where we see all these things taking place as well? Violence, sin, trouble all around. We're wondering, God, why is this continuing on? I'm sure most of us at some point in our life have, have posed those questions. God, just, just come already. Bring an end to all of this. Why aren't you acting or, or doing something? Yet, God allows us to see all the stuff going down just like with Habakkuk, but why? Well, I think a couple reasons. It allows us to see the wretchedness of sin, that we'd want nothing to do with it. It allows us to see the grace of God as he continues to save and free people from the bondage of sin. It allows us to see that there's still work to be done in proclaiming the good news. We might question why God hasn't judged the world already, why he hasn't brought an end to it, but I'm sure many of us are thankful he didn't bring judgment when we had not yet received him. Aren't you glad that God has held off long enough for you to give your life to Jesus, for you to encounter his salvation and grace and his love? We've all been recipients of his long suffering and his mercy. And you see, God is still doing the work. And may we be all the more ready to get on board as we witness sin and wickedness even at work in the world, but to see that God still delivers and redeems out of that. So in verse five, we read, look among the nations and watch. Be utterly astounded, for I will work a work in your days, which you would not believe though it were told you. For indeed, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, a bitter and hasty nation, which marches through the breadth of the earth to possess dwelling places that are not theirs. So God assures Habakkuk that he's not sitting idly by watching evil have its way. Though Habakkuk has seen all the wickedness going on within his own people and nation, God says, oh, I'm gonna do a work in your days that will astonish you. God begins to let Habakkuk in on his plan. 
I'm going to raise up these Chaldean people, the Babylonian army that's going to come against and, and is going to be my instrument of judgment against this wickedness that's going on. I'm not sitting idly by, God says. I'm not, I'm not not doing anything. I'm actively at work here. And I'm going to do a work that's going to utterly astound you, astonish you, amaze you in this. I think that's so awesome. I think that's true for us a lot of times that, you know, the Lord doesn't reveal all he's going to do in our lives because we'd have a hard time believing it. I think if God were to let us in on some of the things that he has in store, we too would be astonished, maybe perplexed, wondering, what? How is, that, that, no, that doesn't make sense. And we'd probably be trying, trying to get busy, trying to correct some of those things that we think, that doesn't, that doesn't add up, God, doesn't seem to make, no, let me, let me help you out here. Let me, let me bring some of my own plans into this here. I think this might work better. I think God doesn't reveal everything to us because we wouldn't be able to handle it. We'd either argue, doubt, or fight against it. Because the Lord's ways are just so much higher than our ways. And he simply wants us to have faith, to patiently wait on him and trust him in that. So God goes on to reveal to Habakkuk what he's going to do, that he's going to raise up the Babylonians. Now, this is one thing that we've taken into account over and over again as we've gone through the minor prophets, that God isn't going to let sin go unpunished. That God isn't just sitting idly by, letting things all play out. Sin is going to be dealt with. And it's because he loves his people that he can't let them continue on in sin and rebellion. So ultimately, this form of judgment through the Babylonians is meant to wake up his people, right? To get Israel shaken up out of their slumber and to see again the power of God and that it is he that they need to be following and walking in obedience towards for their own good and for their own blessing. So God says, Babylonians are coming. They're a ruthless bunch. They're a nation that is on the move, sweeping through the land, and they're devouring whatever's in its path. So Habakkuk continues to dialogue with God and wonder why he would use a ruthless bunch like the Babylonians to carry out his work, especially against his own people. But then we see Habakkuk do something that we should be quick to do as well. When we're wrestling with questions and lacking clarity or comfort from the Lord, look what we see in verse 1 of chapter 2. I will stand my watch and set myself on the rampart and watch to see what he will say to me and what I will answer when I am corrected. See, Habakkuk's been dialoguing with God. God, why the, why the Babylonians? This doesn't make sense. You're gonna use this ruthless bunch to come against your people? God, why? But what does Habakkuk do? Okay, let me take a breather here. Let me wait on the Lord here. Let me hear from him. So Habakkuk, he stops, he positions himself, he listens to God, and he prepares his heart. I mean, that's good right there. That's gold. And I'll be honest with you, I have a hard time doing that sometimes because I want to get busy trying to fix things, trying to get things back into, into proper, you know, order or something like that. I want to solve the issue, get the job done. I don't always do what Habakkuk does where I stop, stand my watch, prepare my heart before the Lord and allow him to speak into me 
And I love Habakkuk's attitude in all this because he says at the, at the end of verse one there, I will watch to see what he will say to me and what I'll answer when I am corrected. Don't you love that? Habakkuk's like, I, I know I'm wrong in this. I know that I'm not right. I know that in my own thinking, I'm like, oh God, this doesn't make sense. I don't like that, but I'm gonna listen to what God's gonna say when he corrects me because I'm sure I need correcting on this. Man, that's a good attitude to have. Just humbling ourselves before the Lord. He knew, Habakkuk knew his attitude wasn't right before God. He's been bellyaching to God, complaining, questioning over how God was handling things. And so Habakkuk realizes, man, this is just my own flesh, I think, coming out. This is just me, you know, not understanding. But he knew he needed to get God's perspective on that. And he knew when he got God's perspective on it, it would mean his own correction. There are times we need to be ready to receive the correction of the Lord. Listen, it's not meant to hurt us, but to help us and to get us back to the place of living with hope in what God is desiring to do. Let's bring ourselves into, into that place of, of humility that says, God, would you correct me? I want to get your perspective. So I know in your correction, it's not meant to hurt us. It's meant to help us and to bring us back to that place of hope in you. And we see that here with Habakkuk. Look at this verse in chapter two, verse four. Uh, a wonderful, great verse here. It says in verse four, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. See, this was a word to Habakkuk and Israel that they needed to simply live by faith. To trust God to take care of these things. Though they may not understand what God is doing, God, why aren't you acting? Why, why aren't you dealing with this? And then when you do deal with this stuff, why are you dealing with it this way by bringing the Babylonian army? This doesn't, no. God says, the just are gonna live by his faith. They're trusting in God. This one verse is quoted three times in the New Testament and in three different books. Basically, it took three New Testament epistles to really explain this one Old Testament truth. Because in Romans chapter three, or sorry, Romans one verse 17, we see that verse quoted. And the theme is how the just are to live. How to be justified before God. In Galatians 3.11, it shows us how the just shall live. And then in Hebrews 10, 38, the emphasis is on living by faith. So in Romans, it's the just and how we're justified before God. In, in Galatians, it's how we're to live. And then in Hebrews, it's the aspect of faith. This is, of course, the watchword for the Reformation. As one put it, the seven most important monosyllables in all of church history. It was this first quote in Romans 1.17 that ignited Martin Luther's spirit and set him on fire. It was to him, as he said, the true gate to paradise. Understanding for the, the first time the depth and understanding of justification by faith alone. And it wasn't through works. It's all by faith. We're not only to be saved by faith, but we're to live by faith. We're saved by faith by grace through faith, but we're to keep on living by faith. To live by faith means to believe God's word and obey it no matter how we feel or what we see or what the consequences may be, what the circumstances are or what it, the situation is before us. It's to live by faith in what God is saying and to trust it and obey it. 
First John 5, 4 says, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So the just shall live by faith. And then in chapter two, we see several woes that are, are listed regarding Babylon. In, in verse six to eight, we see a woe to ambition. Woe to covetousness in 9 and 11. Woe to exploiting people, verse 12 to 14. Woe to drunkenness, verse 15 to 17. And woe to idolatry in verse 18 and 19. But then there are also some wonderful assurances for us in this chapter. Verse four shows us again that assurance of God's grace. There's the assurance of God's glory in verse 14 and the assurance of God's governance in verse 20. The fact that God is on the throne. He's in control. All things are happening just as he has foreordained. And we're called to simply wait on his timing for all things. And not just to wait, but to wait confidently and assuredly of the Lord to carry out his good and perfect will. Look at verse 20 there. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. In other words, trust him. Let's wait and see what he's going to do. Because God's at work. God's never not at work. God is continually carrying out his plan and purposes. Well, in chapter three, Habakkuk begins to look to the Lord more clearly in worship and praise. And as he does, he gets a clear picture of the majesty of God. And he responds with this wonderful declaration of faith in, in verse 17 and 19, uh, 17 and 19 of chapter three. Look at that with me there. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on my high heels to the chief musician with my stringed instruments. Habakkuk is now resolving to stop questioning and doubting God. He doesn't need to let his circumstances dictate how he's going to feel or how he's going to behave before God. He's going to rejoice in him regardless. Because why? Because God is his strength. God doesn't always change the circumstances, but he can change us to meet the circumstances, to deal with the circumstances, to have that strength through those less than ideal circumstances. God wants to do that work in you. Oftentimes, like I've repeated many times, we're oftentimes praying, Lord, get me out of this. But we need to pray, Lord, what do you want me to get out of this? What is it that you want to do in my heart, in my life? What do you want to teach me? How do you want to grow me through this? Faith gives you the ability to stand and to stand sure-footed like a deer here as, as Habakkuk is saying here and to be able to run swiftly and to go higher than ever before. That's what faith will do. Faith picks you up and allows you to see over your obstacles, your circumstances in front of you to see what God wants to do above it all. Habakkuk, he began in that valley of despair, but he climbed to the watchtower, listened to the Lord, and now he's up on the mountaintop praising God. It's an ascent made possible through faith, through trusting in God. May we be those people doing just that. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these books that we can look at here tonight.
these authors, Micah and Nahum and Habakkuk and the lessons learned in it. And though we're oftentimes dealing with heavy subject matter, your, your, your judgment that's coming, yet God, we also see your heart. That you're a God of love, grace, and mercy. And your desire through all that was, is ultimately repentance and restoration. Bringing people back into a right relationship with you. So Lord, I pray that you would help us tonight to see the, the heaviness and the consequences of sin. That you grieve over that. That this isn't something that we, we should ever take lightly. Lord, help us to deal with these things and lay it down in confession before you and knowing that in confession, Lord, you bring forgiveness and you bring reconciliation to us. Lord, help us to be those that are responding in faith to things that we don't understand, things that we don't get. Let us not doubt you, but like Habakkuk, may we be those that will respond by faith and through responding by faith and trust in you, begin to worship you all the more, knowing that you are a good God, that you're in control, and we're safe and strengthened in and through you. So Lord, we ask that you would just lead us on from here now. May we continue to grow in the things of your word and live out these lives as a witness of you and just revealing your love to those around us. And so we pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.